You're listening to an ACCA podcast. So for those of you who don't know, I'm Miriam Kelly. I'm a curator at ACCA. Uh, and in one of these screens around yours um, is Bianca, <laughs> my colleague who works with us in public programs. Um, and we'd both like to start by acknowledging um, that we are both on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And our guest speakers today um, join us from two different uh, uh, sides of, of the country, uh, but Elvis is also on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and Melinda uh, is on the lands of the Ghana people. Collectively, we'd all like to pay our respects to Elders past, present, emerging, and to all First Nations people who might be joining us today. Before I hand over to our speakers, just gonna do a little um, introduction to what ACCA's book club is, for those of you who haven't joined us yet. Uh, and also a few um, really basic housekeeping rules for Zoom. Um, so Acker's Book Club uh, is a pretty new series for us um, and it's become a semi-regular lunchtime program uh, that has been some time in the making. Um, pretty much it's aligned with um, Acker's uh, exciting project uh, of digitising our publications um, from the last uh, 30 years, um, 40 years. Uh, and we are looking forward to kind of releasing those over the coming years um, online. Uh, but while we do that, we thought it would be a really nice opportunity to engage with some of the great writers and thinkers uh, who have contributed to ACCA's publications over time. And so joining us today, um, we have Elvis Richardson, who contributed not only as a writer, but also as a curator and artist for ACCA's summer 2017 exhibition, Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism. Uh, and that publication is now available online through the new publications tab on ACCA's website. Uh, Elvis, as many of you will know, is of course an artist and a writer and founding editor of Countess, uh, the blog publishing data on gender representation in the arts um, in Australia. And today she's joined uh, in conversation with artist, writer and themed new media curator Melinda Rackham, and the two of those have joined forces uh, to co-author the forthcoming pa uh, publication that we're all delighted to be here today to talk about, Countess Spoiling Illusions since 2008. But just before we get into that discussion, a few Zoom things. Uh, Elvis and Melinda will start the discussion, they'll chat, and then we'll open up to questions. But if you have some burning questions throughout, please just pop into the chat at the bottom of the screen. Uh, and then if you want to ask your questions at the end, um, jump on, either raise a physical hand or uh, raise a virtual hand or put a reaction or however you can get our attention and Bianca and I will help facilitate those. We're a small group though, so hopefully we can just chat fairly informally. Um, if you can, with your internet, have your uh, video on. It's great to be able to see everyone, um, but also conscious that bandwidth can be an issue. Um, we are also recording this session um, so that we can release it as a podcast later. Uh, and that will be available on the SoundCloud uh, channel. Uh, if you don't mind, we will just keep things as um, muted, just um, in case your dog barks or I've got <clears throat> really loud doves in my courtyard. So I'll, I'll pop my <laughs> mute on so they don't interrupt us. Um, but we can all jump on and have um, our, our microphones open towards the end. Uh, the, the paper that um, you shared with us, the chapter you shared with us, Elvis and Melinda, I thought felt really timely as we um, end the first semester of university. Elvis, you were just talking about having wrapped up teaching um, 
and uh, looking at that um, incredible early uh, statistic um, from the very that sort of early 2008 um, art school um, consideration. Uh, and it was really wonderful to see how you've integrated your um, discussions, your personal reflections and the blog and the, the sector analysis, um, which I suppose speaks to the way that you've worked on this publication together. And I thought maybe if you could start as you were hoping to talk about um, the collaboration, how that came about and how you've worked on the book together in that way, that'd be fantastic. Oh, great. <clears throat> Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for coming along today. Um, we're excited to share the book with you because we've only got to that final draft relatively recently. Um, and we want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book, but we thought you might be interested in how we work together and, and co we're co-authors and how that might work. And um, so just to start that story, um, initially the book came about as an idea that I was having because um, I had been running contests for like eight years on my own. I mean, I was always getting input off people and all that kind of information's in the book. Um, and I kind of imagined to open it up to other people and bring them on that I would just like quietly ghost out of the room and things would carry on. And I would maybe I would write a book to kind of like, you know, bookmark that chapter and put it to the end, you know, yeah, you get the picture. So um, that was the impetus for the book. But of course, like, um, you know, and because there were funding involved and um, it's always interesting what you propose and then how real life kind of doesn't always <laughs> match up to those kind of expectations or different things come into play. And, um, you know, I've actually, I now collaborate with the people that have come in to work with me on Countess and because um, it just kind of got too interesting to leave, I guess. And, um, and it's worked out well like that. But um, so as, as I was trying to formulate this book, I was kind of getting confused about the story or what it should be or what it should present and how it should, you know, what story it should be telling. And I initially invited Melinda, who I'd worked with before, and we've actually been personal friends for a number of years, um, to write an essay for the book. And as we got talking, it just made more sense like to kind of, I asked if she would come in and help me edit the book and kind of put all the other bits together and she agreed. And, and then it just kind of flourished that it was like, well, why don't we just do this together? And so um, the result that you can see in the chapter um, is the kind of flow that we've created of having, you know, discrete voices in there, but to, um, you know, combine our ideas into kind of texts that kind of flow and glue the book together. And and we both feel like, yeah, it's been a really great process. Um, so I'll hand it over to Melinda. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, hi, everyone. And, and thanks, Elvis. Thanks, Elvis, for inviting me to work on this. It's been fabulous, actually, fabulous experience. I think one of the, what you were just saying, um, I think is really important that the book is, is polyvocal. It has about four voices, so probably a few more coming through it. But it's that idea that there's the Countess blog posts and which change into the Countess report. There's the voice of Elvis in personal memoir, which you know wasn't there at the beginning, but it's just become a really vital part of it. And actually, there's quite a lot of memoir in this chapter, probably more than any other chapter um 
the voice of, of data analysis where it's, you know, number crunching down the line graphs. Um, and then there's the voice of, of theory and thoughts and reflections on, on what happens and, and, you know, possible ways forward with this. So we wanted a book that just wasn't from one perspective. And sometimes that makes it a little bit hard to, to read because you're jumping from one place to another, but actually we think that's really important that it's not, you know, just a smooth slide, through, um, you know, through something that actually you've got to, you know, there's a bit of work to do in it as well. But um, I've, you know, I've been writing for a long time in lots of, of different ways and, you know, often as an individual just working on, on projects myself, I've, uh, you know, opened up platforms for other artists and I've started, you know, I've been a, published a magazine um, in one job I had and, and I've also, you know, written, written books on artists and done collaborative books with poets and I have to say that this project has been the most enjoyable that I've ever, most enjoyable project I've ever worked on. Um, you know, when you're opening up to memoir, and we all know like the personal is political, but you know, the actually opening up to a memoir and a personal story in a book is, is a really, um, it's, it's really, makes you really emotionally vulnerable talking about those things that have happened in your life and, and how they make you who you are as an artist and what those motivations are. And, um, you know, I just saw a real, you know, I just witnessed a real bravery of Elvis to, to sort of open up that stuff, slap it down on the paper without an enormous amount of ego involved of how she wanted, you know, to present herself to the world. Because most, most people are usually interested in going, well, I'm really successful and I'm really good at this. And I'm blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, nah, this is the blood and guts. Oh, it didn't work out. Oh, <laughs> you know, here's my dreams and aspirations of art school and art and this is the world. And I think that's really important for for people to know so working with somebody who's taught me like I've, I've you know I come from a women's studies background I know all that stuff but I've learned so much from Elvis in this and personally gotten so much from the collaboration it's been fabulous and as Elvis said we've known each other since we were at art school so it's a you know mm. it's a long time um yeah, but just a joyful process. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about the practicalities of that, Nelvi. Yeah, no, thanks, Melinda. That was really sweet. I mean, even when I just reread the chapter before doing this thing, like I can't help but tear up in some of the bits, like because they were so intense for me. But um, I'd be interested to see how people respond to you know, all of those sections coming together and if it makes sense. I mean, this is like a forum for us to get a little bit of feedback while we're in this crucial yeah. end of the process. Um, but yeah, we worked intensely. So we, you know, we had a lot of texts that we'd individually written and they were all very jumbled and like through a series of residencies where we got to spend like a week blocks each time, which we probably did about five or six of those. And, um, 
and they, they were super productive and that was when we were face to face and kind of like printing things out and cutting them up and rearranging them. And um, I mean, to be honest, like there was a part of me that was just terribly grateful to have someone there, you know, helping me through this process and, and giving, and I got a lot of confidence out of it because like even, you know, thinking back about the blog, when I was writing the blog and writing the stats, sometimes I was very nervous about putting analysis out there or getting it wrong or looking stupid or, you know, and even as an artist, how we're pushed into all these writing activities, mm -hmm. doing PhDs and what have you, you know, it's, it's been a huge struggle for me. And I hear that from a lot of artists too. We don't see that as our expertise. And, um, you know, of course, like going through all that and this process again, um, yeah, cause I'd recently done a PhD. So then going and doing this, but what was so great is because Melinda's kind of, you know, in her own individual ways done it, you know, this education system kind of does produce similar kind of situations, I guess. So we did share a lot of experiences that we could reflect on and, and, and possibly felt, I felt very safe with Melinda to kind of just throw out any of the dumb ideas and, you know, kind of work through them. And um, yeah, that, that was probably why we both enjoyed it because there was that but you know I've collaborated in the past and it's not always that you know it can be tricky and um yeah yeah but well, I guess one of the elements of Countess is of course it's something that anybody doesn't want to as much as I'm affiliated with it I don't see it as my issue or I'm the expert on data or do you know what I mean I'm just kind of like it always seemed terribly simple to me um, and, you know, just to do that. And, um, but I, yeah, so I, I think it's very open to sharing. In fact, it would seem disingenuous if it wasn't. Um, but, you know, I have to share as well that I'm not an extrovert. I am an introvert. You know, I don't, I'm not, I, you know, I'm intimidated by, you know, those kind of things of bringing people together and stuff and feeling responsible. And it's horrible also to be like, you know, in a thing like Countess where you feel this terrible responsibility to kind of enact these things. So, I mean, with such best practice when you're a flawed individual yourself, like with no support <laughs> or like training or anything and um, so on. So anyway. Oh dear. Um, yeah, I, I, it, it's really interesting. Um, in terms of that, yeah, here we all are doing our things. Oh, I can do that. Oh, that should happen. Oh, this is, you know, uh, I have to do that. And then just, you know, and I guess that's where activism and, and artivism comes into it is that you see something that needs doing and you actually just do it. And I guess that's what Countess did in the beginning and then the impetus just, just kept going. Um, and it's quite funny, one of the publishers we were talking to was saying, oh, this is an explosive expose. It's like the she said of the Me Too movement. It'll blow open the art world. And we're going, oh, oh I don't know. I'm not quite sure that that is what was happening. Then we went, oh, maybe it will. <laughs> um, but I think it's that thing of we, what, 
the book does is take stuff that we all know, like we all know, you know, women don't get a good deal. We all know that things aren't equal. We all know that. Um, and even when it does look like it, it's 50-50, such as the example of the Samstag scholarship where, you know, 50% men, 50% women get a scholarship, yet all the publicity and support material are, are skewed towards men. Men are on the posters. Men get the that uh, you know. Men get more recognition from it, and it advances their careers more. Like they're the underlying invisible things that go be on behind what we think is equity, even when we think we've got equity. So, what the book does throughout is just put the stuff you think you know, the tedious, boring. It's not fair. And it opens that up statistically um, and in personal stories and theoretically uh, to go, hey, this is really not right <laughs> and it's systemic, it's ingrained, we don't even know we're doing it. I think later in the book and um, should we just go through the chapters, Elvis? Yeah, I was just thinking yeah. that. I'll, I'll just share yeah. the screen. We just thought because we've given you one chapter out of the book, um, we'd give you a bit of an idea of where that slice kind of comes out of the grander narrative and what precedes it. Um, yeah, so we've I've tried to put a really great detailed kind of Countess timeline, including anecdotal stories of um, conversations and so, so on with, you know, people who weren't officially involved and but had influence in the project. Um, uh, the first chapter starts with talking about names and why names became an, a way to reliably, on the whole, identify someone's gender and talking about how we're named and how our names are gendered and, um, you know, some histories and things with that. Also, that's where the idea of my personal story just seems so poignant because obviously I, I, I changed my name to Elvis when I was 19 and um, I, I chose Elvis because it was a boy's name because I wanted to seem like I was a boy on paper or something. I don't know what I was thinking. I also wore my rich watch on my right arm so people would think I was left-handed. I think I read a lot of Agatha Christie where you had to kind of like... Um, <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, um, so, yeah, so that chapter does that. And maybe we just talk a chapter each, Melinda. You do that oh, too. I was, just, I was just saying um, it's also where we set up the idea about you know, why we're employing that sort of strategic essentialism um, in Countess to to highlight, you know, we recognise that women aren't a, you know, aren't a conglomerate and that, um, you know, it cannot be equally spoken about, but we're, we're just being strategic in, in, that, in that essentialist aspect. Um, yeah, and, and that idea of renaming and the idea that there was no non-binary gender data uh, when Countess started, but it's been utilised, you know, we've brought it in, you've brought it in, Countess report has brought it in um, since it has been available. 
And then, yeah. like, we go high school reunion. I've we've create. I've got data on um, uh, students who study art at high school, and I and I was really lucky to get data that spans a twenty year period. So we look at like high school students. It's focused on Victoria, but I believe it was it, you could probably apply it to other states. Um, it. I think was there other data in there. Uh, yeah, I'll just, that's one of the main data things off the top. Oh, it's Art Express and Art Top Art, top which are the two, um, you know, selection exhibitions were very revealing. And, like, what was revealing mainly about the high school data was the government and non-government schools and how, you know, obviously, um, you know, non-government schools just weren't faring, you know, anywhere near the, as well as the government. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. I'm getting all the pronouns mixed up, but... Um, yeah, so it was kind of establishing this sense of socioeconomic status and, you know, evidence and data around that and high schools and then who goes to art school. Um, so I guess, yeah, so we're kind of, I guess it's establishing a little bit like who are this pool of artists? Like, you know, if we look at most of the artists in an exhibition at, you know, a major gallery, we'll probably find 90% of them went to art school. So who gets to go to art school? So we're kind of trying to dig down into that. Yeah. Yeah. And what ex yeah, what expectations are set up by by you know, income ethnic background and social class and and um especially if you're a woman, you don't you know, we look across a wider section of opportunities and women don't get even shown opportunities. Um, in, there's some interesting data in there about about gender and race online as well, and what what how women are discriminated in those areas. And I thought to, maybe we should whiz through the rest because we're yeah. getting up to one thirty, and if anyone wants to ask any questions, might have some other discussions. But <laughs> you can see, like, yeah, each one kind of has a data story, has a you know, personal story and kind of has a theoretical kind of context and discussion around that. So this one's all girl shows and this one's um, who gets to teach at art education um, in universities and, um, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the, um, one of the really important things for me is to look at, you know, how feminists and feminisms see see patriarchy and male-dominated institutions and ideologies of inequality and racism and violence and environmental destruction um, and how how we as women, um, as door bitches and gatekeepers and art scholars, how we inadvertently or invisibly um, hold up those those systems how we don't challenge them how we how we go oh look that great young male artist would be good on our cover not thinking oh perhaps this great young woman artist would be good <laughs> on our cover um how the images that we see every day are always skewed to the masculine skewed to males so that it doesn't even come into your consciousness unless you're constantly making yourself aware that that there is an inequity. Um, and I think really importantly, 
there's there's a lot of data crunching on on um, major institutions and how they acquire work, how work gets onto walls, and even when statistics are positive, um, you know, there needs to be vigilance because even with major blockbuster shows around the world, uh, what usually happens afterwards, and I think Maura Riley talks about this a lot in her book as well, is that even when, say, the Pompidou shows only women artists on its walls for 18 months, it snapped back to 15% representation straight afterwards. So that, you know, this is the reality of actions that we think, like feminists thought in the 70s, oh, it's all changed, we'll never do this, but the women's art register, da 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 da, da. It's like, nah, it just keeps happening and happening and the system snaps itself back into place. But is that system at a point of collapse, <laughs> you know, like our environment is? Um, yeah, so that we talk about origin, uh, you know, collectivities and, and ways forward, ways forward of, of working um, as well. So it's not all doom and gloom. It's actually, yes, there are these good people. And I like the poster you've got in the background, Elvis, the, one of the FEMO works, which is Find Better Rich People, which I think Natty Thomas, um, it's one of Natty Thomas's terms, but, um, you know, the, there's been a lovely philanthropist, a philanthropist <laughs> supporting Countess. Do you want to talk about that? Um, I'm conscious of time. What did, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm happy to if people want to ask questions, I think. Yeah. Do you want to anyway. tell us a little bit about the philanthropist and then we can... We can oh, open okay. Up. Um, well, yes, I must acknowledge um, John Carruthers, um, who is the son of the of his mother who is the son of his mother well him and his mother and his family set up the um organization the Crothers Art Foundation which was a collection of women of as women artists mainly Australian women artists which they donated to the University of Western Australia and upon doing that they turned themselves into a fan from a private collection into a public foundation and they were looking for research projects. So they were looking on the radar and like, so very early on back in that 2011, John had, had approached me to do a talk at a conference that he was doing. And, and then from that it grew, he, you know, offered research money and what would I do? And I always felt Countess's core business was just about the data. I felt like that was just something that we could always you know, rely on and use in a kind of predictable way. So that's how the Countess report and the kind of sector-wide data thing um, came about, yeah. And they have continued to um, support the, that as an ongoing initiative, which we've committed to doing as well as a, as a group, yeah. When you t uh, talk about the data in the book, is it is it more data than you've um, collected through the yeah. Countess? Yeah, yeah, so it's, and yeah, each section. So yeah, I've got lots of new data, like this high school data. I've got all the art school teaching data um, and where we found, you know, most more that art schools employ 60% women, but they're all in the lower kind of categories and like there's hardly mm -hmm. any in the higher categories, like across the board, like um, collectively mm -hmm. in individual schools, you had some different results. Um, 
We also kind of, and we tried to unpack some of those issues and what that means and how it might extrapolate into, you know, other avenues and also looking at the relationships between, there's a lot of problematic relationships between like the professional arts and the educational institution. And we talked about ERA and research outputs and how they're valued and, um, you know, counted and measured and, um, you know, and how, that just in and of itself, you just had to put a few, join a few dots to see how an accumulative disadvantage would just, you know, be, you know, forever kind of like, yeah, and that's where merit grows and, you know, it's systematic. It's easy to kind of unpack some of those things. So, I mean, this, and again, why the, uh, sorry, the um, personal story, because I work in a university and I have to deal with those issues. So, um, yeah. And the, the sporting chance, um, do you want to just unpack that chapter a little bit? Mm. Um, well, that was around, there was, a, because we've got the historical Countess blogs and they often board up an issue. So there was one post from there that was on the blog, The Art Life, which was like a very popular blog when they first started back in the 2005, six kind of era. And um and then about the Basil Sellers Art Prize, which is possibly a long forgotten phenomena, but you know, it was a huge art prize and there was lots of money and I was selected in the first one. Um, so like, yeah, I was able to talk. So we've got that data and, um, have, you've probably got the little notes there, Melinda. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting about art life and Basil Sellers as both of them, appeared not to know that that they were actively excluding women by choosing high percentages of men to, and it's like huh? does that compute but that goes back to you know the systemic you know systemic hierarchies that we we just don't think about every day um and they both those posts really generated a lot of traffic uh, heated discussion on the Countess blog. So we've included the discussion in the blog going backwards and forwards, which is, is really interesting to see how, how a lot of people have engaged with um, these discussions as well online. It's not just being putting a post up, it's actually become community discussion. It's and I think that just exposing the vulnerability, Elvis, you're, you know, the financial and emotional vulnerability of being in a, a prize where you could win $100,000, which is, you know, life-changing for an artist, an artist <laughs> to $15,000 a year. The, has it gone down now? It's probably gone down to zero with COVID. But, um, you know, just yeah. the vulnerability of, of being in that. And the idea as well in that chapter of... Um, women's collectives and projects that redress that balance with a sense of humour, with rewriting history and, and destabilising presumption about, about myths. I think this is where something that's really important in the book is humour. Um, I'll just tell you a little story. I, I've been doing this other project that came straight out of the Countess blog, which uh, the Countess book, which was about remaking Australian women's artworks and putting them online in museum challenges because we don't see enough women's artworks. And I put one up the other day and um, 
Seymour Hardy, Sydney artist, um, commented on it and saying, but do feminists ever scare the patriarchy? And I was thinking, oh, do feminists ever scare the patriarchy? <laughs> and, um, and then that Margaret Atwood quote came to mind where it's, what is it? It's if um, men are scared that women will laugh at them, women are scared that men will kill them. And, um, you know, very famous quote. And, so and, humour you know, is a weapon weapons. which to... <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and throughout the book, the Countess blogs are, you know, hilariously funny with this dry, biting humour. Um, uh, and we use, you know, a lot of other women's projects that are, are humorous as well, like um, Anita Rusk, who, who actually makes pie charts with a robotic arm in a gallery um, icing the pie charts to show gender inequity <laughs> and then you can you know send them off photos off on Twitter and package them and send them to a, a gallery or gorilla girls you know the biting humor of gorilla girls or um, or um, people like Mona Shalabi um, Elvis introduced me to Mona Shalabi I don't know if everyone knows her She's work. the data visualization woman on the Guardian, um, and she does. Yeah, she's got a great Instagram feed, Mona Shalabi. Yeah, she just does. You know, and and is a visual artist and holds shows and and you know talks a lot about how women and and um, people of color, you know, their invisibility in the mainstream art practice but in great and funny ways. Yeah. So, so that's, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, humour is, is incredibly powerful. Humour is incredibly powerful. You talked a little bit about how the collaboration came about, but maybe if you could just um, also talk about why you felt it was necessary or important to put this into a book format as, as well as having all the incredible presence online and the... Oh, yeah, I probably would have abandoned a book early on, but it's just, it was one of those things that was tied to funding, a, you know, like a harebrained scheme done at the last minute that then you get the money and now you're kind of on this, you know, plodding along this path. Um, yeah. So I guess also a book is also an important um, aspect of the art world as well, like to kind of, you know, it has a monograph quality to it in a sense, like it's not a full monograph of my practice, but, you know, we've been able to kind of like, you know, contextualise Countess in my practice as well. And um, and that, yeah, so a book, I'm proud it's a book. I mean, yeah, I think it's good. I'm really glad now that it, we're at this end of it. But, yeah, if you had asked me during the process, yeah, I would have abandoned it at any point and made something else. But I didn't want to give the money back. <laughs> I think what's important as well in the last, the last chapters are sort of a reflective chapter where we actually talk about the persona of Countess and um, the presence of Countess and how that impacts on the life and the art practice of Elvis Richardson, the artist, and 
it's not something that's talked about a lot. It's like when you have some something that's successful, that's more a social activist project, social justice project, how that impacts on your own life and what you're able to do and how you're seen as an artist. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was like I had another job, like I had to have a job and I had to do the Countess and then whatever, yeah, and then it overshadows your work. Like, um, you know, we came up with loads of examples, like being asked to op do the opening speech at an all-women's gallery, but, you know, I'm not considered as an artist for the gallery. Um, or, you know, just loads of things that kind of contradict, you know, where, I'm, yeah, I get to kind of service the women, you know, for women, but it's like I'm not, I, it's like I've had to forego being an artist myself in some kind of way when, I, anyway, that probably just sounds weird. But does anyone have any questions? <laughs> yeah. Comments? <laughs> Thoughts? Experiences they want to share? I'll keep asking questions if you don't talk. <laughs> oh, don't be shy. <laughs> I was going to say good on you guys for doing it. Um, yeah, well overdue. Amazing. Oh, thanks. Big yay. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> thanks, Deborah. Oh, there's more. I think the thing is, there's more to be done, and there's always more to be done. Um, yeah. I was wondering about um, how you guys had thought about launching the book and whether there'd be some kind of performative or exhibition component to that. Well, yeah, that'd be great. Um, yeah, we'll have to see, like we're still waiting to find a you know way to publish it and who we should do that with. I mean, like, of course we could self-publish it, but I just feel like it would be better to have, you know, some kind of institutional support, whether it be a publisher or an institution, um, yeah, just to do, yeah, we've done a lot, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we've, we're still trying to work that out. Like, we've gone down a few paths that haven't worked out. So, um, yeah, now we're kind of, like, at the back at the beginning going, okay, so if anyone has recommendations or <laughs> if you're an editor or a publisher, <laughs> please be in touch. Uh, and I think there are, yeah, and I think part of it is not wanting to compromise like countess has always remained like fiercely independent not wanting to be co-opted by anyone so it's that idea of oh actually no we can't change this or um not mention that uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um in the in the publishing so yeah, we spill the tea. <laughs> yes, sometimes it doesn't make you everyone's friend. Um, yeah, but you know there are lots of yeah, lots of possibilities yeah. coming up. Do you yeah. re reflect in the in that sort of last chapter or even throughout? Do you um, feel like there's been some significant changes um, that you can see as a result of the report? Um, in the institutional yeah well the last countess report like showed significant changes like particularly in galleries like Acker and art space and you know since the previous report like they had moved in above 50 percent categories for women 
but um, but you could drill a bit further when you see that if all of those women are conglomerated into one all women feminism show and then the rest of the calendar is kind of spread out amongst others um yeah well yeah i don't know like we melinda came up with the term femme washing and it was you know kind of like making it all look good so there's been a lot of that going on so uh yeah it, it's going to be a case of let's just see if it lasts or what happens so it, it furthers our commitment to continue the counting process which we we've set up to do every four years um yeah and we're trying to instigate a little bit more um through you know working with some other people that we could maybe collect the data online that the institutions could because collecting it it's a lot of kind of a lot of tedious work as you can well imagine yeah and i think you know i've been at um i've been at show openings and overheard people saying oh how do we do in the countess data so there's this idea that um you know there's a prominent <laughs> know prominent people um so there's this idea of the countess effect oh if we look good in the data everything's okay but and it's sort of like the museum snapping back to how it was afterwards it's like vigilance 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 and 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 vigilance um which yeah as i said is tedious um but if things if we want sustained change, and it's great that things have changed, but it, it needs to be sustained. I was, I was looking at the question here from Anne Robertson. Anne. It seems like gender inequality and culture wars are the double whammy for the arts. How do we navigate this? Um, <laughs> oh, well, see the, the poster we did, our countess are currently working with the National Gallery of Art of Australia on this Know My Name initiative and we came up with this little idea of a focus on gender as a focus on power and I guess it was a little bit behind our, you know, in, you know, theorising the book and the kind of like essentialism of gender. Well, I'm not sure if essentialism is the right word, is it, Melinda? The strategic essentialism, that's right. <laughs> Um, of focusing on gender um, is is I think applicable in this in addressing you know both of those things not together it's not going to solve both of them like in one thing but I think that when we look at gender we do look at power and that's and whether it's yeah whatever it's um, cultural identity might be because often when there is cultural diversity in shows it's not women who get to be that in those roles and 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 most of all we don't want to have this system where we're just changing the players but the you know behind the camera mm. you know it all the system stays the same i mean it's got to happen in both you know in the institutions and all staff and in the artists like yeah because when you look at institutions, you know, you can, yeah, you get what I'm saying. It repli it's replicated everywhere, basically. Yeah. There are, you know, and the, and the book ends on quite a few suggestions of, um, you know, things to do, which seem intuitive, but, you know, perhaps we don't always think about it. Like, yeah, collaborate with other women, invite other women to 
do things, cite other women when you're writing a paper, show women's work, um, write on other women, buy women's work, <laughs> you know, just that constant, constant, it used to be called affirmative action. I'm sure there's another name for it now. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and, you know, be collective, be collaborative, um, you know, get away from the idea of individual, the individual male genius. Um, and, you know, I'm really heartened, I was really heartened last year by the, the Tate Gallery where the four artists went, no, give it, give it the prize to the four of us as a collective. And, you know, the Turner that, prize, yeah. The Turner, sorry, the Turner. Oh. Yeah. And this year they've, instead of holding it, they've given the commissions to 10 artists instead. And so getting away from this one oh, genius. Yeah. yeah, it comes out of nowhere to like, yep, yeah, we are a community and we all do things together and we all sit on the shoulders of others and, you know, that, yeah. I know, I think we'll struggle with that for a while because I think art education just really conditions you to kind of like um, to want that like model, like it's really hard to kind of strip away that desire to, but I want to be the brilliant artist and I want my work just up there or, or whatever it is, like that sounds like a ridiculous tantrum, but um, it's kind of like how we're conditioned a little bit to be artists. You know, you do have an art star, someone is on the cover, collectives and things like that aren't valued in the same kind of way or they're questioned or they're weakened. You know, it's, the, it's this idea of identity, I suppose, of, you know, what, an artist is and what they look like and how um, they operate in the world as if they are like these singular things but every successful artist has like a army of people behind them supporting them mm. in some way shape or form so it's just a mask and a mystique um, yeah yeah and I guess we look at you know include other people like say Barbara Cleveland who you know, talk about the, the mythical, you know, remake the myths and Venus Matrix who are like global superstars, but are they in the National Gallery's, you know, greatest hit show? I don't think so. Um, you know, so it's like, ah, oh, yeah, revaluing. Oh, that, the lovely book on Kiffy. Rubo. Kiffy Robo, yeah. Like just reclaiming our history reclaiming the women art scholars the curators the you know the women who've done great things in the in this country and around the world that who just disappear from history it's like re remake that like and and you know the other thing too is you know for for women of color as well and you're saying a, a double a double whammy and you know there's a a triple whammy um you know it's like looking at our privilege and getting out of the way and asking if someone wants you know if there's a way to help if that's appropriate um, um but you know not making those assumptions because there have been you know lots of um you know one of the ways the numbers are skewed and i think Elvis brought this up quite early in one of the chapters. I can't remember which chapter it was, but large shows of Indigenous women actually upped the number of women artists showing uh, because there was, you know, people like um, Hay Perkins were, were doing 
uh, great shows of, of women, uh, Indigenous women artists early. Mm. So, yeah. Has anyone got any stories to share? Yeah, share a story. <laughs> Might get into the book. <laughs> I was going to say that um, I was working for the IMA when the um, Turner Prize, when we had Lawrence Arbuhamben had his show there and um, we noticed, um, I don't know if it was by coincidence, but like people would come in knowing that he was nominated for the Turner Prize and then as soon as they announced that they were sharing it, the, the, the show was far more popular. Like we had oh, a, like a really big influx of people being like, this is one of the guys that got to share the Turner Prize, right? And it was like yeah, right. everyone was super excited by that. Um, yeah, right. I think it was a really interesting kind of psychological thing. Oh, that's really is interesting because yeah. that's when the narrative changes. Totally like, narrative oh, changes. wow. Like, oh, so you can still have that fun feeling of, you know, winning, yeah. you know, kind of succeeding at something without it kind of crushing mm. others beneath sure, you on the way. No longer like this kind of um, like applicant in this, you know, hugely political and, um, you know, I guess financially rich art prize. It was kind of a nice tale of <laughs> ah. unity in the art world, which was, yeah, quite. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. It's definitely what people want, isn't it? Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Mm. And I think too that thing of, oh, yeah, older women getting shown, um, sure. which is another one of um, the Countess statistical proven things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Data analysis results. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that Elvis. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we can cite a few occasions where women, you can see they're much older because the art world's really based on age as well, as if you, we all go through this one progression and, you know, we're all at the same kind of stages, your mid-career, your this, your that, or whatever it might be. And, um, yeah, it's very linked to age. And, of course, we know age is women's, you know, are judged by, you know, that aspect and whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, it's, we could easily find that like of all the artists who'd been to the Venice Biennale, for example, like all the women were in their fifties or heading towards 60, but most of the men were like early forties or late thirties. So they were getting their art careers launched at a time when, you know, artists peak in their forties in this whole age kind of thing. That's, that's the biggest group of artists. They're in their forties. Um, and that's when men get to do that, where women, women kind of get it as like, oh, you've had a nice career, kind of like a reward at the end almost. Like, and it, has a, it doesn't have the same impact um, as, as someone's launch and potential future than the one that they've already kind of established and it's not being valued. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to, to um, pipe in and ask about the, the turn to... Um, high school art education and, and your perceptions of the data there and what, what those students are experiencing? Um, well, just in a nutshell was, so it was over 20 years from 2000 or end of night. Oh no, it was from the beginning of the nineties till now. So it was kind of at the time after Dawkins had come in and like the university system had changed and just prior to, um, yeah, you could see this whole kind of, you can see how the system was being lined up as a series of like uh, markers. Um, 
of oh sorry I got off the track there um yeah okay so the data was basically showing a shift from um, the theoretical art subject, which was uh, visual art, and then you had studio art in high school. So there were these two streams and they were both about equal, about uh, 20 years ago. They both had similar numbers, but the theory one was always given a higher score for the entry into university. But that became less popular over time um, because studio art, I believe, probably because it allowed more diversity and what have you. So more people are taking studio art. So you can see that the numbers in, in the whole arts program, like it, it reduced by the number of people who choose art in high school now is like a third of what it was 20 years ago. And and we could plot that it had gone down in the theory arts, the studio arts had slightly gone up, but the biggest growth was of female students in non-government schools, is the biggest growth of art students in that period of time, um, which, you know, you could come up with some typical character, you know, what that might typify, um, and you're probably right, yeah. <laughs> Does that answer your question? I mean, that's just one aspect of it. But, you know, we were also able to use data that's freely available online, like demographical data about certain areas and how private schools actually do kind of, um, you know, how they work and what students they do consist of. And it's not reflective of the suburbs that they're located in or anything, you know what I mean? Like they're kind of these like sponges of, you know, highly, Whatever, yeah. So when you look at those two things and you and you have that kind of backup for it, you can conclude, um, you know, who's studying out at high school and probably going on to do that at university. Yeah, it definitely paints the timeline. Yeah. Are there any more questions before maybe we, we wrap up with a warm thanks for our speakers and the generosity in sharing... Um, this extraordinary project. Um, Elvis and Melinda, thank you so much for sharing. I just have a question, which is a bit of a, um, maybe not as related, but just having this book publication and the research, I wonder what's next. If you, if you guys have anything brewing up, <laughs> um, any unrealized <laughs> projects? Um, yeah, I'm just interested to hear more about that. Uh, what about you, Melinda? What have you got next? Uh, oh, well, you just oh, got the money from the Copyright Council. So oh, yeah. I'm, 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 do, I'm, I'm doing a project that came straight out of this research on remaking um, Australian contemporary women artists, and it's a fantastic... Mm. So I curate, perform, document, and then it's pop on it on Melinda's Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is great. And actually, the first one I did was a, a, a femage, um, of Elvis's found Peter Lane image of me in a bikini. And, you know, here I am, a 61-year-old, rather sturdy woman, standing <laughs> in a bikini in front of a Holden Marina, <laughs> <laughs> looking very proud. Um, and it's like, yeah, remaking these images so that 
they go through the the, the conscious, you know, uh, social consciousness rather than than male images. But the book I want there's a couple of projects. I because I'm an adoptee as well, and I've done a few projects on adoption. I'm really interested in um, uh, doing some more work on that. In I don't know if it's textual, visual, or or whatever. Um, Elvis and I are always saying we're going to curate a show of adoptee artists who are adopted um and you know there are millions and the other thing i want to do is write a book on um artists part artist partners who work together um so you know is the sum of the sum of the relationship does it make bad art say like joyce hinterding and david haynes or um at stars and chimlowski or um uh Aurea Harvey and Michael Salmon in Belgium or you know that yeah yeah so that's that's a big picture book I want to do with fabulous glossy things um, <laughs> yeah well, that sounds great yeah um oh well um yeah you can look at my Instagram feed as well I put up some <laughs> I've been looking at um well, from my own situation, I was trying to find affordable housing and I started, I discovered there were these amazing photos of real estate photos. So I started collecting those more than 10 years ago. So I've been doing that and I just periodically put, you know, ones of interest up on Instagram. But um, I titled the whole, whole project Settlement um, and it's because of its many kind of interpretations in a kind of hat property transaction to kind of like settlement in a relationship or sediment in um, earth and things like that. And so I'm exploring that through um, gates and barriers and things in the domestic environment. Like, and I'm really into wrought iron at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Look, thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us today. Um, this has been such a wonderful discussion. Yeah, thank um, you. Thank you. Thank you.